Good evening. My name is Emily Duffy, and on behalf of the Catholic Information Center and the National Review Institute, it's my pleasure to welcome everyone who is joining us tonight, both in person and through Facebook Live, for the first installment of our three-part series, Making Citizens Great Again. Today, more than ever, Americans are asking themselves how to be truly engaged in politics. This series will explore what it means to renew politics and to develop a virtuous citizenry. Tonight, we will discuss the critical role that education plays in forming the next generation of virtuous citizens. We are honored to have with us President John Garvey of Catholic University of America and President Stephen Minnis of Benedictine College. The panel will be moderated by Catherine Jean Lopez, Senior Fellow at the National Review Institute. Please join me in welcoming our speakers this evening. Um, thank you very much for coming tonight. I know everybody, there's a lot of competition for your time, and so gl so glad you're here. Um, the genesis for this event was um, I was sitting in Mitch Borsma's office at the Catholic Information Center being depressed about the upcoming election, <laughs> and I thought, well, what can we do that's constructive in the fall to talk about renewal and rebuilding and, and things that are going on in the world that, that work um, and that maybe are, are models. So anyhow, um, and, and part of the inspiration for the panel was, was, was actually John Garvey and probably your inaugural address at Catholic University where you were talking about virtue and, and virtue's been a big focus of your, your administration. Um, and, uh, and, and so anyway, I'm, I'm delighted to have uh, John Garvey and Steve Menace here um, thank you, Steve, for coming out from Kansas. Sure. I know you've got a busy schedule out there. So, so anyhow, without any uh, any further uh, uh, introduction, um, once we we get hooked up here, I'm good. There we go. I'm All good. right, Tom, please. Thank you. Thanks, Catherine. I, uh, and it's nice of Steve to come. Nice for opportunity for me to see him. I, so I I teach a class on the virtues to. Freshmen in our honors program, we, uh, it's about the uh, the cardinal virtues and the theological virtues. But it's mostly we we read novels, watch movies, and that sort of thing. My aim is to get the kids to fall in love with the virtues. And Catherine's um, series on virtuous citizenship had me casting around for something appropriate to read uh, for the next time I teach the course, which will be in the spring. I, uh, certainly timely. I. And this summer, by chance, <coughs> I've been reading um, this uh, three-part uh, Life of Cicero by Robert Harris. Does any of you know this? Uh, it's really great. Let me, let me just recommend it as, as good, good fiction. But it's, it's sensible fiction, too. I mean, it incorporates a lot of uh, Cicero's own writings and stuff. And so it's fairly true to life and pretty intelligent. He, um, I was drawn to it because Cicero used to be the go-to guy on on civic virtue, he was admired by Augustine and and uh, Locke and Jefferson. He, uh, his after the Gutenberg Bible, Cicero's De Officii, as we public school kids would say, or De Officiis, as the Catholic school kids would say, was the second book printed in Europe. And for him, um, politics and ethics were inseparable. And he spent a lot of time thinking about them because the Republic was falling apart in his time. He died in forty-three, but the, the Republic collapsed during his time in office. And in reading Harris's biography, I was struck by two things that Cicero kept coming back to. One of them was the avarice of the patrician class. And the other one was the, it, well, for, uh, he mentions, I mean, Harris and, and Cicero mentions often the, the wealth and the lust for more wealth of people like Crassus and Pompey. Crassus, incidentally, was a real estate developer. And uh, that's one of the things that strikes me. And the other one is the shameless deployment of government benefits by politicians as a way of buying support from the plebeian classes. So, um, for example, Catiline ran for consul on a program of cancel universal cancellation of debts, which would, of course, have included his own. Publius uh, um, Claudius Pulcare, the guy who drove Cicero into exile, the, the, one who, the one who tried to seduce Caesar's wife. Um, he uh, put in place uh, free grain handouts to the plebeian classes, and Caesar himself uh, promoted laws and succeeded in passing a couple, giving free land out to uh, veterans and, and uh, people in Rome who didn't have any land. Um, all of these things, Cicero said, uh, seemed to be connected with the downfall of Rome. 
So <clears throat> I, I want to begin by arguing a factual point that there are some societies that are, are cultures, political um, um, bodies that are worse than others. And I wonder how this comes to be. I presume you believe, as I do, in the notion of original sin. And one of the things that original sin means is that human beings considered one at a time are equally weak and ignorant and concupiscent, that is to say, inclined to sin. Uh, it does not mean that all humans considered one by one are equally good or bad. Lear's daughter, Regan, was an all-around worse person than Cordelia was. But um, because, and because we have free will, some of us are going to succumb more often or more, more, more seriously to temptation than others. But, but if you take large enough samples, groups of 300 million people, say, you would think that these individual variations would even out, like they do when you're flipping a coin 300 million times. You get heads and tails and even numbers. And yet I think there are more and less evil states and <coughs> societies and cultures. Cicero, for example, thought that the Romans who built the Republic were better people than the ones that were in place when they lost it to Caesar. So how can this happen? <coughs> Virtues uh, we try to get across in my class are habits that we learn by watching good people and practicing what we see. So we learn virtues the way we learn to hit a baseball or to play a musical instrument. We, uh, once we acquire the knack, it's easier to do the right thing. At that point, our habits become, as Aristotle says, second nature. And uh, it, uh, in large groups, the, uh, the catechism says that the Christian learns the example of holiness from the church. He, uh, he discerns it, the catechism says, in the authentic witness of those who live it. And so too with vice. Think about the recession of 2008. Democrats will say that this was the fault of bankers who were avaricious and wanted to make a lot of money selling. Um, Republicans will say <coughs> that it's a result of greedy borrowers, or maybe the result of regulators like Barney Frank, who, who um, uh, wanted to give out free land the way Caesar did. Uh, or some people might say it's the result of the credit rating agencies who didn't pay close enough attention to their work in order to get fees. In fact, they're probably all correct about this. Uh, I think that what happens with bubbles like this is that people buy houses or tulips or whatever for X dollars, thinking that they're not worth X dollars, but that their price is going to go to X plus two and that they can get out before that happens. And, uh, and uh, this is true of the buyers of houses and bankers who lend money and regulators who, who um, approve uh, mortgage-backed securities. And uh, what happens is that um, it is, as Charles McKay says, a kind of collective madness, or, or maybe, better yet, just avarice learned by example from, from one another. So was it something like this that caused the fall of the Roman Republic, or that accounts for our lack of civic virtue? I do think that there was something like this going on. I don't know uh, about, and I believe that this moral corruption that we're seeing uh, today is a kind of collective moral failing. Um, I want to focus on one particular vice that I think was in play in both cases. The, and the vice I have in mind is concupiscence. I don't mean just lust in the ordinary sense. I mean. Uh, the lust for earthly things generally. I, I mean something that causes us to violate the seventh and tenth, not just sixth and ninth commandments. But I think it's at work in a lot of what's going on. It was the sin that so troubled Cicero about the patrician classes and about, about catering to the plebeians. Patricians like Catiline and Crassus and Pompey were wanted to amass great wealth. The plebeians wanted free handouts for things. And against these tendencies, here's what Cicero says in his De Officiis. Let those who are to preside over the state obey the following precept, that they so watch for the well-being of their fellow citizens that they have reference to it in whatever they do, forgetting their own private interests. The administration of the state is to be conducted for the benefit not of those to whom it's entrusted, but of those who are entrusted to their care. That spirit, he says, was missing in first century B.C. Rome. I think we're missing it too. I'm not sure what caused 
the problem in Cicero's Republic, but I do have an idea, and this is my, this is the punchline I want to get to. I do have an idea about why it's happening to us today. A uh, long time ago, I used to teach at the University of Kentucky, and and uh, remember being uh, going to the wedding of two of uh, two of my students, and the vows, if you want to call them that, which they exchanged, were the following prayer. This is Fritz Perls's Gestalt prayer. I remember it verbatim. I do my thing, and you do your thing. I'm not in this world to live up to your expectations, and you're not in this world to live up to mine. You are you, and I am I. And if by chance we find each other, it's beautiful. If not, it can't be helped. Honest, honest. <coughs> that was their, those were their wedding vows. I should have done that. That's all I did. <laughs> <laughs> so, I said, <laughs> so I said to Jeannie on the way out, I, I, I'll give them 12 months. I was off by, I was off by six weeks. I, the, the couple's vows embodied the moral principle that is central to modern life. We are all autonomous human beings. Our moral obligations derive from the good as each of us sees it. This is not a prescription for a successful marriage. Neither is it the basis for a political union. But in the modern version of social contract theory, the state is organized to provide each person with the greatest possible liberty, consistent with an equal liberty for all. And liberty, rather than say the common good, is the central principle of political life because it serves the moral principle of autonomy. The idea that each person should define and pursue his or her own good. And since the 1960s, our own Supreme Court has constitutionalized this understanding of freedom. The court's interpretation of the due process clause has begun to sound more and more like the Gestalt prayer. See if these sound familiar. I quote from four Supreme Court opinions beginning in 1972. The marital couple is an association of two individuals each with a separate intellectual and emotional makeup. If the right of privacy means anything, it is the right of the individual, married or single, to be free from unwarranted governmental intrusion into matters so fundamentally affecting a person as the decision whether to bear or beget a child. Here's another. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Here's another. Liberty presumes an autonomy of self that includes freedom of thought, belief, expression, and certain intimate conduct. And one last one, the right of personal choice regarding marriage is inherent in the concept of individual autonomy. In a society organized around this principle, it is not surprising that we should be interested in pursuing our own bliss. So, uh, well, and this this is what I mean by concupiscence. This concupiscence is not the vice of just one party. The Democratic platform calls for repealing the Hyde Amendment and helping women to rid themselves of unwanted children. It calls for full protection of transgender rights and rejects the misuse of religion to discriminate against LGBT persons. So real personal autonomy means being able to slough unwanted children and to change one's sex. When I was a boy, the Democratic Party's successful candidate began his term as president by saying, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Today's party offers free health care, free education, free family leave, free cell phones, free, you know, you get the picture. It sounds like Tiberius Gracchus. The Republican <coughs> candidate launched his campaign in 2015 by saying, and I quote, I have a total net worth of $8.73 billion. I'm not saying that to brag. I'm doing that to show that that's the kind of thinking our country needs. <laughs> he started a university named after himself in 2005 and charged students up to $35,000 to learn how to get rich. On the other hand, he's argued for deporting 11 million poor people. Contrast the bishop's emphasis on earned legalization and maintaining family unity. He's opined that torture works and we ought to try more of it. Maybe killing families of terrorists. I, uh, I think we're all going in this direction, and that's why we've got the candidates we have. Now, I, uh, Catherine asked me to talk about what our role in this is, and I haven't done any of that. I'm sorry. <laughs> Except <laughs> let, me, I'll, let me leave that to Steve and close yeah. by saying... <laughs> 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 
close by saying that civic virtue, like <coughs> civic vice, is about the formation of citizenships, and th and that begins before they vote, they vote or, or run for office. In fact, uh, uh, the catechism talks. That, you know, that in part three of the catechism, they start. Uh, it talks about life in Christ, and uh, it begins early on with the discussion of what the common good is. And and um, after the discussion of the common good, here's what it says: It's incumbent on those who exercise authority to strengthen the values that inspire the confidence of the members of the group and encourage them to put themselves at the service of others. Participation, they say, begins with education and culture. So uh, Catherine is on to the right thing. It is uh, the universities and families before that with whom a change in this has to begin, but we certainly need a change. Thank you, so, John. Nice job. Okay, well thank you so much for having me here. My name is Steve Minnis and I'm president of Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. It's about 45 minutes north of Kansas City. I appreciate uh, this invitation and I want to thank the Catholic Information Center and the National Review Institute who I think are just the perfect groups to sponsor this topic and I believe uh, starting out reviewing the impact of education on creating virtuous leaders and virtuous citizens is uh, the right way to go. I appreciate the invitation of Catherine Jean Lopez. Thank you so much. An honor to share the stage here with President John Garvey, who had to use Latin in his talk today, which <laughs> kind of threw me. So uh, <coughs> he quoted Cicero. I was trying to find a way to quote Yogi Berra, so it'd be a little, uh, the contrast would be there. But uh, I appreciate that. And it looks like we have some ravens in the audience. So thank you so much for being here as well. Uh, it's becoming clear that what happens in college and university has an impact on persons and ultimately society long after a student leaves that institution. And why do I say that? I'm going to give you a few examples. Uh, first, uh, recent studies that tell us that between the ages of 18 to 24, three key things happen to young people between the ages of 18 to 24, basically the college years, right? Number one, they develop lifelong relationships. They'll, they'll meet their friends for life, perhaps a mentor, a professor that they, that they love and cherish, and, and maybe perhaps their spouse during their college years. Secondly, they'll make the faith their own. They'll move from an immature faith or maybe the faith of their parents to a time in their life when they're asking the very tough questions and uh, embrace a faith that they'll have the rest of their life. And finally, uh, they discover their vocation, whether that's a religious vocation or a married vocation or a single vocation, but maybe it's uh, their vocation of whether they're going to be a lawyer or a doctor or a business person or a teacher. Those three things happen while they're in college, and so it's really important. When I talk to students all the time, uh, seniors in high school, and I say, look, you're, gonna make a, you're not making a four-year decision here. You're making a 40-year decision because what's happening in college will affect you the rest of your life. Uh, secondly, a recent Gallup-Purdue survey uh, surveyed 30,000 people in the workforce, okay, 30,000, and most of them had been out of college for 10 years, and they determined whether these people were engaged in the workforce. In other words, were they happy in their job, were they effective, were they, were they uh, helping their employer and doing the job that they were supposed to do. What they found was, I thought, was really interesting. They found the three common threads of people who are engaged in the workforce. Now, remember, these people had been out of college for 10 years or more. The three key uh, common factors were, number one, while they were in college, they found a professor who made them excited about learning. Secondly, they found a mentor in college. And third, while they were in college, they did a research project that sometimes took more than a semester. If that happened while they were in college, 10 years after that, they were engaged in the workplace. So what happens in college is important, not just for when they're there, but also for society. Finally, <clears throat> another interesting statistic, in the late 1950s, for every two people that received a college degree, one person retired. So basically, we were replacing uh, the workforce twice as fast with college graduates. Today, for every one person that receives a college degree, two people retire. This generation that's in college today will be asked to take on leadership responsibilities in organizations faster than any other uh, generation in our history. We take that responsibility very seriously to prepare them for those leadership uh, roles. Now, John Adams, uh, but it is, uh, I'm going to say, but it's not enough to develop leaders or citizens while they're in college. But it's critical that we develop virtuous leaders and virtuous citizens. 
You know, John Adams said that liberty can no more exist without virtue than the body can live and move without a soul. So liberty can no more exist without virtue than the body can live and move without a soul. So you may ask yourself, can, uh, can you develop virtuous citizens outside a faith-based community? I think that you probably can. Uh, but frankly, the universities in America over the past 30 years or so have for some reason abandoned the responsibility to develop virtuous citizens. Only a few specifically non-faith-based institutions, for example, maybe Hillsdale College, now consider it their duty to form young people into virtuous citizens. Therefore, the country must turn to faith-based institutions like Catholic University of America and like Benedictine College who are willing to see this as their duty to prepare young people for virtuous leadership roles and to be virtuous citizens. Uh, Benedictine College and CUA take this responsibility very seriously. You have the president of CUA teaching a class on virtue. I think that's a telltale sign right then. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Benedictine College because I think it's important. We were founded in 1858, okay, three years before the Civil War, on the Kansas and Missouri border. You guys know your history, right? Not a great place to start anything, okay? But the monks were tough, and they wanted to start a school for the Lord's service. And uh, to kind of put our longevity in perspective, uh, okay, so 80% uh, of all the colleges and universities that were founded before the Civil War don't exist anymore. There are 250 Catholic colleges in America, and there's only about 17 as old as we are. Uh, to put it in real-life terms, we've been around so long, the Chicago Cubs have won a World Series since we've been founded, okay? <laughs> so that'll kind of give you an idea. So this is a school that survived the Civil War and two World Wars and the Great Depression, uh, and every time came back a little stronger. But there's no question that today, at this time, uh, the college has never been stronger than it is right now. Uh, just in the, in the 21st century, our enrollment's more than doubled to 1,900 full-time students. Uh, we built 11 new residence hall buildings and three academic buildings and a new recreation center, new athletic facilities, and, and so on and so forth. And people ask me all the time, okay, what's causing this success? Why this success and why now? And our answer is pretty simple. We made a conscious decision that we were going to be a mission-driven place. We embraced our mission, our mission as a Catholic, Benedictine, liberal arts, residential college, whose mission it is to educate our students within a community of faith and scholarship. So for us, the integration of community and faith and scholarship is the key to our success, and it's, a, it's the best way to educate young people, we think. Uh, through the support of our mission, we seek to embrace Pope Benedict's vision of true education as intellectual charity. Pope Benedict visited Catholic college and presidents and superintendents back in 2008 at Catholic University of America. And at that meeting, he said, the difference between a public institution and a Catholic institution is that public institutions are there to form the intellect, whereas Catholic institutions form not only the intellect, but also the will. By forming the will, a Catholic institution will form virtuous citizens if they take that duty seriously. Well, Benedictine takes that duty seriously. So what do we do to try to form virtuous citizens, okay? In our curriculum, <clears throat> we require three philosophy classes and three theology classes in order to get a degree at Benedictine to teach the fundamentals of faith and reason necessary for virtue. Outside the classroom, we strive to create the conditions under which virtue can exist and thrive. We undertake uh, intentional efforts to build a campus culture where, where it is contagious to live the good life. We have a lot of traditions. Uh, we believe uh, that these rites of passage uh, look, uh, uh, lock in memories and provide the experiences that define the identity of the student often for a lifetime. We strive to be sure that our traditions are welcoming and that they direct our students' attention to the fact that they are part of something larger, larger than themselves. Uh, and that they have been chosen through providence to use this time at this special place to equip themselves for this unique mission. These traditions create a closeness among our students, among our alums. Um, uh, through the ages, many times, uh, most of our alums will be able to reply once I say, once a raven. Always a raven. Always a raven, okay. So they, they, they it, it took these with these ravens anyway. We also start uh, every year, uh, every uh, college career 
and end each college career with a pilgrimage to our Marian Grotto. We surround them with art and architecture, with reminders of the faith. We offer them access to worship and sacramental opportunities every day to reinforce the importance of faith in everyday life. We recognize that to form virtue in students, you need to present models of virtue to them. Uh, President Garvey has said in, on more than one occasion, the most important thing that we can do is hire for mission. That's the most important thing that we can do as a college, uh, and we do try to hire for mission. I interview every applicant for every job on our campus, and I ask them before we would hire them to explain how are you going to contribute to the mission. I don't ask them if they understand that we have a mission. I don't ask them if they accept the fact that we have a mission. I ask them, how will you support, how will you contribute to the mission? If they can't answer that question, we won't hire them. I want every man or woman who works for Benedictine College to be someone our students want to aspire to be like. So that's the kind of people that we want to hire. We also focus on leadership formation to our students. We hire, we bring leaders from all fields, people who can articulate how faith and character contribute to success to campus every week. In fact, this week we have the Reverend Gene Rivers and his wife, Dr. Jacqueline Rivers, on our campus uh, to, for just that purpose. We have a formal leadership development program and are very intentional about campus leadership positions like RAs and orientation leaders, student government uh, officers. In fact, you cannot uh, get one of those leadership positions unless you attend a multiple week leadership program on our campus. The, and that leadership program emphasizes character, competence, and a commitment to greatness. We also believe very strongly that all of our students, whether leaders or not, should be provided with ample opportunities to serve others. Our largest student organization is the Hunger Co Coalition. Our, most of our students skip a meal every week and give that money to the poor in Atchison, and on Saturday mornings they make sack lunches and deliver those to the poor uh, in that city. In addition to our formal service learning program, we have large numbers of groups that go on mission trips uh, around the world. Just last year alone, more than 10% of our students traveled to five different continents to serve the poor. Uh, and every, every sports team uh, on our campus must do a s service project uh, or they won't be able to play. Our Residence Life program is a very clear example of our commitment to forming uh, virtuous leaders. As very basic single-sex dorms with limited visitation hours allow our students to grow and develop into young adults while, without being constantly caught up in the hookup culture that is pervasive on so many campuses. But our Residence Life program is far more intentional than that. We, de we, we developed a model called the Family Model on our campus, which adheres to the Catholic Church's social, moral, and religious teachings. The family model has four pillars. Number one, a community of love. In other words, the experience of community. School of virtue, which uh, allows for personal growth. The domestic church, uh, which supports spiritual maturity in the vital cell of society or social responsibility. All of our programs much touch on one of those pillars of the family model or we won't do it. We use the church's theology of the body to promote chastity and discourage the kinds of behavior that leave young people emotionally devastated and broken. I always tell families that during the first week of school, while schools across the country are handing out condoms, uh, we are taking men and women, separating them, and giving them talks on chastity and healthy relationships. We believe that this experience of living in community with intentional guidance, guidance is the best preparation that we can give our students for a life of virtuous citizenship. And we've succeeded. Our, graduates, our graduate, graduates have had a positive impact on society. We say that there's no question that today we are educating future CEOs and bank presidents and lawyers and doctors and bishops and prioresses. But we also take very seriously that we're also educating future school board presidents and, and parish council members and little league coaches and mothers and fathers and scout leaders, people who will make their communities better, people who will be able to carry, pass on the faith to the next generation, people who make the world a better place to live. Of course, religious liberty is essential uh, to let us play this vital role. And this is why I appreciate the Catholic Information Center and National Review Institute because you understand the big picture. You understand that every force and ideological trend pushes against the inculcation of virtue, and that everything in society tells young people the only standard is pleasure plus consent. We believe that virtue requires self-control, 
the ability to consider the impact of our actions on others, and the willingness to prefer the good to the pleasant. So what we do is totally, totally countercultural, but we know it's the right thing to do. In other words, to do our job is to form the intellect and the will, and we have to be a witness to this alternative. Preparing virtuous citizens is what our country needs colleges and universities to do. For some uh, reason, the government now seeks to make that harder by making it harder for us to convey the fundamental faith orientation that upholds our ideal of virtue. We'll keep doing what we do so long as we can because we believe not just our future, but the future of this country depends on it. Thank you. First of all, I, I want people who are outside to know their seats in here. If, you, if you'd like to come in, please feel free. And um, Steve, thank you. You did exactly what I was hoping you would do, which we, Unlike was... Unlike some of our speakers. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. No, John <laughs> perfectly diagnosed the problem. <laughs> but don't we need somebody from Kansas to come here and talk about... Absolutely. Conta- More people from Kansas. Virtue being contagious on campus? <laughs> we, need, we needed a little uh, a knock of our Beltway cynicism. But, but on that note, John, is it... Is it possible to create a campus where living the good life is, is something that's contagious? And, and is it that mission-oriented hiring that does that, makes that plausible? Uh, I do think it's contagious, and I do think that the two things are related. I, I, it's contagious in the sense that I, uh, that I mentioned in my talk that we, um, the, uh, the catechism says we, we learn virtue from the church, from, from one another, from seeing how our friends live. You know, there is no more impressionable group than young people who are in the 18 to 21 age group. You, uh, you, it's other, your peers' opinion of you is such an important thing, and the approval of the people who are your teachers is such an important thing. And I, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, that we both talk about on our campuses is at most universities in America today the the school will conceive its uh, responsibility or uh, what it's giving you in return for your tuition dollars is a certain amount of knowledge about uh, Chinese mechanical engineering, um, uh, history, whatever. Um, uh, If there is further discussion about how you ought to behave on campus, uh, you're told two things. One is that um, you need to make good choices. Nobody ever says what choices you ought to make. You just make choices. And the other is that sexual activity ought to be consensual. So if it's enthusiastic, it's fine. If, uh, if there's hesitation, then, uh, then it's not. But that's the sum total of the moral instruction that you get. And it fits exactly with what I was saying is the dominant um, uh, ethical ethos, the, the one that our social contract is built around. Um, I don't think that that's true. In fact, I think uh, there's a much longer ethical tradition that says, uh, take Aristotle, for example, in his Nicomachean Ethics, he says that you can teach math to young people and you can teach physics to young people, but you can't teach ethics to young people because they don't know how to behave yet. And you need to, uh, you need to form these habits before you understand uh, writings about ethics. Um, we we learn ethical behavior before we come to understand it, and practicing it helps us to under helps us to understand it. So actually, the kind of formation we give our students um, also is connected with the intellectual uh, activity that goes on on the campus. Um, now, that's the reason it's important for us in hiring faculty to get people. Uh, and not uh, who who are distinguished not just by having written a dissertation on a particular subject, but who will model the kind of behavior that we want our students to learn. That's why it's nice to have, you know, after we returned to single-sex residence halls at Catholic, another thing that we did was begin putting priests and religious women or young married couples with kids living in the dorms alongside the alongside the students, and they're doing the very sort of thing that at Catholic universities. 60 years ago, we used to do, you know. There were so many of uh, people of the generation ahead of me who were, who were uh, formed as young Catholics by 
Jesuits or, or Ursuline sisters living in the residence hall alongside them so they could see what, what their life was like. Well, this is, uh, we don't have enough religious to staff our universities in that way now, but it's still the responsibility of the teachers that we hire to help our students see what the practice of virtue is like, not just preach to them about it. And do you, do you find it's easy to get faculty to, to be living on campus and participating in, in, in that kind of? Well, it's a little tricky, um, especially if you start attracting the kind of faculty that we find ourselves attracting. You know, young people that have like a lot of kids. Right. <laughs> All of a sudden, they kind of outgrow the they outgrow the residence halls. But, but we have found that the that the the priests and uh, religious women are much more willing to do it in single sex residences. So you know, we've got a nice population of Dominican sisters from Ann Arbor and Nashville who are who are on the campus and uh, who provide a great. Uh, picture to the students about what a vocation like that ought to be like. Steve, on the, on on this contagious campus, uh, they, 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 where virtue is contagious, what what is actually most challenging in terms of of sure forming the virtues? Well, uh, I'll take a, a couple tactics of that. I I always tell folks the the most difficult thing that we have is competing against state universities that have great Newman centers, okay? So the best Newman centers in the country are uh, New University of Nebraska-Lincoln, University of Kansas, Texas A&M, and University of Illinois. And we're like smack right dab in the middle of them, right? And so <laughs> I get parents all the time saying, why spend the extra money to send my kid to Benedictine College when I could send them to this great Newman center? And our answer is, you know, those Newman centers do a really nice job, right? Within those four walls of that Newman center, great stuff is happening. But the problem is, is that when they leave those <coughs> four walls, your son and daughter is going to be attacked uh, indirectly and sometimes directly for their faith because of the types of faculty members, the types of administrators that they have, the types of living situations that they will have on that campus. I mean, it's treacherous out there. When I interview uh, faculty members, uh, you know, we talk all the time about integrating community, faith, and scholarship in everything that they do. So we tell them, I say, look, it, we know that in your classroom great scholarship is going to happen in there because we know that you're a great teacher and we didn't, we didn't think you were, we wouldn't be interviewing you. But it doesn't work for us if you don't allow community and faith in the classroom, too, because you, as an educator at Benedictine College, have a duty to educate our students within a community of faith and scholarship. If you're not willing to do that and you're not willing to try to integrate that into the classroom, then this is not a good place for you because you're not going to be happy, we're not going to be happy. And so that's probably the toughest uh, duty to get folks understanding that it's a complete... Um, complete package all around the campus. When I interview resident hall directors, I say, I know great community is going to happen in that dorm, but it doesn't work for us if you don't allow faith and scholarship in the dorm, too, because wherever our kids are, our students are, whether they're in the dorm or in the dining hall or on the playing field or in the classroom or on the sidewalk or in church, we are constantly, as an as a, uh, entity, educating them within a community of faith and scholarship. It doesn't work unless it's all integrated, and that's probably the hardest thing is to try to integrate that uh, as much as we can. I got a cute story. So on on holy days, we uh, on holy days of obligation, we have an all school mass, and so we we uh, uh, like for a ten o'clock the ten o'clock class, we'll cancel that, and we'll have our students go to mass. The same mass on November the first, I had a student come up to me and said, "If you want to build one of the great Catholic colleges in America, I can't believe you're." Uh, not giving us the entire day off since it's a holy day. Uh, not more than five minutes after that, I had a professor come up to me and say, uh, I can't believe you're trying to build one of the great Catholic colleges in America and worry about academic excellence, why you uh, not have class, uh, you're, you're canceling class on this, uh, for this mass. I said, well, okay, well, I can't win. It's a con constant balance. So. One of um, the most frequently asked questions I, I, I hear is, so we live in this reality where people are changing their, their, their genders and, and, uh, and marriage is what, whatever we determine it will be this year, and, and all these fundamental questions where there's no common vocabulary, and, and getting at the common good seems kind of impossible to communicate. Um, so students are at your school for four years, and they have a safe environment where these 
virtues can be nourished and whatnot. How are you preparing them to have those conversations with a world that just is living in a different reality? Um, you know, it takes place on the campus as well and at the same time. I, uh, I think that there are d different schools model this in different ways or try to address it in different ways. But um, <clears throat> my own uh, feeling is that the most important thing for our students is uh, not that we uh, prevent the culture from seeping in while they're there. In Washington, it's just impossible for that not to happen. That's a that's a, um, a hopeless sort of ambition. I, I'm not sure that it's the the best way to begin either. The most important thing is that they that there be a community of students who make the practice of faith uh, believable and attainable and also appealing. Uh, around them and <clears throat> faculty who uh, who both challenge them and offer them uh, not only uh, intellectual support but also the support of their own lives for uh, for living that way so for example to uh, you know I find that since ex corde ecclesiae uh, for the last 26 years now there have been uh, debates and uh, fights on college campuses about inviting speakers of one kind or another to campus, people who will, uh, who will take positions at odds with the teaching of the church. Um, my own feeling about that is I, uh, I, um, that it's, it's a university, and so people ought to be, students ought to be free, faculty ought to be free to invite speakers of whatever stripe they, uh, they want. I feel secure in the knowledge that if we have the kind of faculty that we've been trying to hire, that the kind of speakers we're going to get, for the most part, are going to be people who, uh, who offer some support for the way we're teaching our students. This is different from commencement speakers or honorary degrees, you know, when the university itself uh, holds somebody up for admiration or gives them a gives them an award for uh, being something that's a kind of endorsement by the university of what the the recipient is getting so I don't you know we're we're particularly attentive to the people who are giving endowed lectures or uh, speaking at commencement but if the students want to bring um, I don't know the producer of the film about Harvey Milk on the campus to talk about that I think it's a good thing for us to have a conversation at our school about that Steve, um, when students leave Benedictine, is, are, are, are they able to go out to New York and Washington, you seem to have, <laughs> and, yeah. and, and mix with the culture, or is it about starting a, uh, sub, you know, a subculture in the catacombs? Well, that's a great Because that, that is sometimes is a criticism sure of some of the Orthodox yeah. Catholic colleges. Uh, yeah, my daughter, who just graduated from Benedictine, was uh, driving home. She's a nurse, and she... Uh, she called and she says, hey, where's the church around here? I just feel this is in Kansas City. I feel like the world's going crazy. I need to go, go to adoration. And I, you know, I thought, gosh, just a year ago, she'd have been able to walk across the street right, and do that. And so our, our, our students are well-formed, I hope. Um, you know, I think one of the important things that we try to do, and, and John touched on this, uh, President Garvey did, uh, that we're trying to create joyful Catholics, Catholics that that are uh, happy in their faith. Um, and I think it's important for us, and I know CUA does this very well too, is that trying to saying that Catholicism and Catholic higher education can be a both and. Um, Robbie George was on our campus, uh, and he once said what he loved about Benedictine is that sometimes there's Catholic universities that kind of pull away from society and define Catholicism only as the sacraments and uh, don't allow the internet and, and cell phones and things like that. And then there's uh, also a whole host of Catholic universities that kind of pull away from the church and define uh, Catholicism as service only. So the beauty is uh, of what I think that Catholic U and we try to do, which is very difficult, is that it can be both and. It doesn't have to be either or. I mean, this is what the Pope has asked us to do. Love the church and love others. Serve the church and serve others. It can be a both and. So. Uh, <clears throat> our kids love the sacraments. We've had to add a daily mass on campus because of overcrowding. What a great problem to have, right? Uh, our uh, confession lines are out the door. I keep telling our kids, why? I mean, our, our, our faculty and staff, why are we 
recruiting so many sinners, but, but be that as may. But, uh, so they love the sacraments, okay? But they're also going on mission trips. They're serving the poor. I mean, it's just a wonderful thing to see. What we hope is by living the mission on our campus, community, faith, and scholarship, that they'll be able to take that off of campus too. And that's what's going to create virtuous citizens, we think. Well, I have to say one of the reasons I'm so excited that, that you're both here tonight is not just because you're esteemed university presidents of schools I'm fond of, one of which I went to, Catholic U, um, but the two of you are joyful. I've, I've traveled a little bit of the world with both of you um, in various places, and uh, including Mexico City, where you did not abandon me, Steve Minnis, oh, late at night, and I, <laughs> where, where others did, I might add, not John. <laughs> but anyhow, um, so, so, so thank you for being here to, tonight to open this this because you're 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 the real deal. You're 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 living this, um, which is why I think uh, you're seeing such fruits at your universities. Um, I wanted to start to open this up uh, to the broader conver- to a broader conversation here. Um, your hands was up quickly. So. <laughs> Do you find yourself having trouble with um, the, the prevailing culture that being judgmental is a bad thing, that being nice is what's important, that you know everybody can do their own thing? Um, do you find that a problem in the, the students that come into your schools? It, uh, I, I find it is the great challenge uh, for getting a uh, – because, again, to return to what I was saying earlier, the, the prevailing – moral norm in the United States though, and the one that the Supreme Court is reading into the Constitution is that the right is prior to the good, as Rawls said. The, the right that he's speaking about is the right to freedom. So we don't tell people what, what's good or bad. We just tell people that they're free to choose uh, the good for themselves. And that's what we mean by being non-judgmental. At the same time, you find uh, that these, it, it's easy enough to bring people to understand that they don't really believe that. Uh, they're, they're, uh, uh, in our popular culture, we make judgments of good and bad all the time. Uh, the Civil Rights Commission I was reading in today's post just made the judgment that religion is actually a bad thing when it gets in the way of non-discrimination requirements. and and businesses and schools and so on. Uh, uh, we, we are committed to principles of equality that are, uh, we, we rank, the, we say that those are good and, uh, and denying them are bad. And that's a moral judgment that we, uh, that we subscribe to. People uh, don't have any hesitation about saying that. Uh, so too, uh, the Pope announced on September 1st that we should add to the corporal and spiritual works of mercy a new care for our common home. And that was met with general enthusiasm, especially on the left, but among thinking people on the right as well. Uh, uh, care for the environment, for plant and animal life around us is a good thing, and, and uh, not caring for it is a bad thing, and, and everybody agrees with that. Um, we have differences of opinion when we come to applying that to care for human beings. <laughs> there, there's more difference. But so people really do believe that there are, that there's good and bad, that you can be judgmental. It's just what you're judgmental about when you get right down to it. Right. We, we know there's universal truths. My, our, uh, um, our challenge is not to have our students define what those universal truths are and remind everybody else of what they are. So that's, uh, that's our challenge. It's funny that the confusion over Pope Francis saying, who am I to <laughs> judge, right. is both, yes, confusing, but also a tremendous opportunity because he wasn't saying you can't be judgmental. Um, he was talking about conversion of heart, and he was talking actually about conversion. Um, so you, you, you don't get mercy just because... Um, and then continue what you're, you're, you're doing. Um, but it also it was this tremendous opportunity because so many people did misunderstand it. And, and, and so people take a second look at the church. And then there's this opportunity to start showing people what exactly the church is teaching and, and, and who we are. One of my concerns is, uh, is that and we're a year out almost from the Pope's uh, visit here that most people aren't listening and, or, and, and, and 
within the church, people aren't taking that opportunity, seizing that opportunity and following his lead. He opens doors. And so now let's show people what, 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 this, what the church is really about um, and beyond the nose, that, the, the prohibitions that, that so many people um, are familiar with. Another question? I had a question. A few, um, many universities, many universities started as uh, religious schools, not just Catholic schools, but many Protestant schools, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Columbia, they all started as religious schools. A few years ago, uh, Father James Bircher wrote a book called The Dying of the Light that discussed how these all started as religious schools and the light has gone out. So my question is twofold to you. One, do you ever interact with other university pres presidents to talk about just this sort of issue, holding up virtue, Christian virtue, Catholic virtue? And it's also affected many Catholic schools as they're sort of gone seeking more recognition to give up some of their Catholic traits. And uh, how do you stem that off yourself? Well, I'll, I'll uh, just jump in real quick because you're going to have a more thoughtful answer than I am. And, uh, <laughs> so, um, I think there are some schools that felt that they could not be both faithful and academically excellent, okay? And so some decided whether they're the Harvards of the world or maybe some Catholic institutions said, okay, we're going to put our faith on the shelf here and we're going to concentrate on academic excellence. In um, uh, then Pope John Paul II came along and, and issued Ex Corte Ecclesiae, and he said, not only can you be faithfully Catholic and academically excellent, to be faithfully Catholic means that you must strive to be academically excellent. It can be done. Again, it's a both and. It doesn't have to be an either or, and this is the path that we chose. I, I will, um, this is, and so, and we're pretty happy with it. Uh, I was going to say something very much like that. Fa Father Virgil wrote this book. Uh, there was a 10-year period, but Ex Corte Ecclesia was, uh, was um, promulgated in 1990, and then over a period of 10 years, the American Ca the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops was working at, uh, on an application of Ex Corte Ecclesia in the United States. People forget that Ex Corte applies to Catholic universities around the world, and the situation in most countries is very different from what it is in the United States. But there was a lot of um, contention within the United States over what exactly it would mean for the uh, building of great universities here. Um, most of it around, most of it was uh, a sideshow to my way of thinking. Oh, when I say a sideshow, I don't mean a, I don't mean a joke, but I mean a little bit off the main point. Most of the discussion that uh, that we have heard about it has been about two things. One, the idea that uh, theologians who profess Catholic theology should get a mandate from the local bishop. That's something between the theologian and the bishop. The university doesn't uh, manage that relationship. Uh, so, uh, and theologians uh, at many Catholic universities who wanted to show their academic bona fides would make a uh, point of saying that they weren't going to get a mandate, that uh, the orders of the bishop weren't going to get in the way of their being great scholars. Uh, that's one thing. The other thing is we have perennial fights over uh, commencement speakers and uh, wishes <laughs> of... But really, uh, as, as I have often said uh, to, to faculties and to people at the bishop's conference, the entire document, Ex Corde Ecclesiae, has the, the most important thing, the most important sentence in the entire document is the one that says, uh, to be a truly Catholic university, they should have a majority of the faculty committed to the witness of the faith. That, was, that also appears in the application of Ex Corde Ecclesiae. If you build a Catholic faculty who love the church, your university will be Catholic, and the rest of these things will sort themselves out. If you don't build a Catholic faculty like that, then you'll be like Harvard, Yale, Brown, Chicago, Duke, uh, Princeton. That was the point of Father Birchall's book. Who you hire is everything in building a Catholic university. If you hire the right people, it'll all turn out fine. If you don't, it's over. 
both talked about the importance of living the faith in a community on campus. So what happens when we all move into internet learning? You know, this is one of the, uh, one of the reasons that uh, I um, give to parents when we're having discussions about why they ought to spend a couple of hundred thousand dollars to send their <laughs> sons and daughters to Catholic University. There, uh, uh, well, let me just back up a step. Uh, we're last, by the way, if you want to. <laughs> 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 you want to live in Kansas, huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Jeannie and I have um, five kids, and together, uh, all together, our five children have had 94 years of Catholic education. When I took my job, I was basically busted. <laughs> And I say to parents, I would do it all over again because there is nothing that I would rather spend my money on than making sure that my kids turn out all right. And, and that's what it was for. I don't think you can do that just anywhere. If, you're gonna, if it's really true, as I believe it is, that we learn uh, virtue by, being, by seeing holy people practice it and uh, imitating what they do, we have to be in their company. We, you don't learn virtue by watching television any more than you learn virtue by attending lectures. So the community that you live in is really an essential part of building the life of uh, virtue that we've been talking about. There may have been times when it was less important. You know, when, when the majority or the great majority of American families were intact and, and fathers and mothers taught uh, the practice of virtue to their children, um, uh, universities may have been able to play a different role in the formation of young people, but I think nowadays it's really, uh, it's, we really make an essential and unique contribution to the culture in, uh, in doing that. So I'm not sure that you, I, I don't believe that you can do it on TV or on a video screen. And I know my, my successor will be mad at me for not do, going online, but I, you know, our mission is to educate within a community of faith and scholarship, and we believe that you can only build that community in a classroom with people there and living in a residential environment, and I, we just think that's the way to go. I don't think there's any question that this generation, I'm a little nervous about this. I just read an article the other day where this generation doesn't want to have personal contact anymore, that they want to go through the drive-through. Even at McDonald's, you can order electronically so they don't have to speak to the person behind the The things. people that you talk to are actually in Denver when you... Yeah, well, no <laughs> kidding. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so we worry about that. I, I worry about that, but I still think it's the best way to educate young people. So, One question I wanted to jump in with is, is you mentioned the word sideshow, and it reminded me... Um, John, that I've, I've frequently heard you talk about how some of our debates about same-sex marriage and gay, gay issues and whatnot um, are a little bit of a sideshow when we're, we're talking about the problems of, of chastity and marriage. And, um, what, from, from the, you, you both have single-sex dorms on campus. It was controversial when you, you became president. And Not with was me. <laughs> Not with you at all. Well, it was one of the first things you did. I mean, we're fixing this problem. Why, why is that so important? Um, focusing on on the general problem uh, rather than we we get caught up so much talking about what what I think you you have 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 said, and I may be paraphrasing you. It's a little bit of a sideshow when you consider the broader problems. Uh, what I mean there, again, is not that it's a sort of carnival, but, but, that, it, but that next to the real problem uh, with understanding love in our, uh, in our culture, it is such a small slice of, of the concerns. We have this fascination with the sex lives of gay people, and I say to our students all the time, uh, let's talk about your own uh, call to chastity. It's you know the it's 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 as though uh, I, I think that the reason the Catholic Church has had has has failed so miserably in getting across its own point of view about traditional marriage, about same-sex marriage, is that they that they lost the fight over uh, over sex 
back in the 1960s. I, uh, they, there was a time, I mean, th this is the fight over, over um, Humani Vitae. Uh, th there was a time when uh, sex and children and lifetime commitments were all part of one contract. They, uh, they all went together. This fell apart in the middle of the 1960s for several uh, reasons that happened altogether. One was the FDA's approval of effective prescription contraceptives. The second one was the Supreme Court's decision in Griswold against <coughs> Connecticut, which said that there was a constitutional right of married couples to get contraceptives. I, I, the other, my, the first quotation I gave you was from a case called Eisenstadt against Baird that said that single people also had a right to prescription contraceptives. Anyway, what, ha what happened then was that what used to be one contract had, has become three contracts. Um, one is about sex, and one is about babies, and one is about lifetime commitment, and they now have nothing to do with one another. S you can have sex without having babies. In fact, that's kind of the baseline understanding. You can have a, life, you can have a marriage without having babies. You can have sex without having a marriage. They're all separate they're all questions separate from one another. And uh, in a world like that, where straight people can have sex without any conversation about babies or lifetime commitment, why can't gay people have sex on the same terms? That's why the Catholic Church lost the debate over same-sex marriage, because they didn't co communicate their own idea about what sex and babies and, and families and commitments are like. It's just, it's an idea that's foreign to, to the modern mind. That's the sense in which I mean that this is a sideshow, not that it's not an important question and not that the Catholic Church doesn't have, uh, that these are not all God's children that we're concerned with in the same way. It's that we have this <coughs> cultural fascination with the sex lives of gay people and we're just paying no attention to the, the, uh, the, um, the, the I, I, um, to, to the sex lives of straight people, who, which are all messed up. <laughs> and you didn't think we were going to talk about sex tonight, did you? <laughs> Always <laughs> back to sex, doesn't it? Right? Um, <clears throat> just briefly, so, so people can uh, get ba back uh, home and, and went on. Um, for people despairing during the course of the next couple of weeks, um, what, what might be uh, just a something that would focus the mind um, in terms of of the work that we need to do to uh, to uh, help virtue flourish and 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 realistically so too it, it, are there any thoughts that you might just give people when they're having their dark moments reading the news headlines about the election and things about uh, how we really can I, rebuild uh, I, I have a small thought which is a which is to me a, a really important one. You know, in today's world, um, when we have social questions that we're dealing with, uh, we tend to turn them into how can the government solve this question? Like there's, there'll be a shooting at some, at some school, and the immediate, uh, everybody's immediate reaction is, well, uh, the federal government needs to take your pick, have stronger laws against gun control, or provide more care to the mentally ill, or uh, or provide more money for better policing in the cities. Or the, it, it's the federal government's job to solve the problem of shooting in schools in Connecticut or, or Colorado. Um, I think this is crazy. Uh, um, nobody ever pays any attention to the fact that the shooters in, in all of these cases are between 18 and 29 years old, and they're always boys, and they always don't have dads at home. And I, I, you know, the, the, the way to... The way to solve this problem is there isn't, we can't legislate against it. We have to bring our boys up better. And, you know, I'm, I'm in charge of a couple of boys in my life. <laughs> I mean, in my family, my boys are not shooters. I, 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 but it was a lot of work to get them to that point. <laughs> and it wasn't just me who did it, but I, you know, I at least deserve some credit for sticking around and getting them to this point where they're, where they're not shooters, and that is every dad's responsibility to make sure that his boys don't grow up to be, to be shooters. And the, uh, the same is true of this kind of problem. You know, is there a way of, is there a way of, s of solving the situation we've gotten to in our, in our political life? Uh, the picture that I was trying to paint was pretty bleak. 
You know, I mean, we have an American ethical culture um, it, it, uh, that is the foundation for an American political culture where we don't have any sense of the common good because we, we're not allowed to talk about what the good might be and um, we're not allowed to express the notion that, uh, that my good and yours might be the same one, that, you know, that we could share it so that it's, it's common. Well, getting from, getting from there to where we ought to be is the work of building a culture. And uh, for all of us, uh, building a culture starts uh, at home in, in our own lives. There, um, Tocqueville wrote when he, uh, when he came to America in 1831, he was talking about how Americans were prepared for citizenship by, the, by virtue of the fact that they lived such good lives at home. One of the things that he said was that the, in Europe, almost all the disorders of society are born around the domestic hearth, meaning we learn virtue at home and then we take it out into political life. But that's true. That's, um, but the other place we learn it, as the catechism says, is in our education. And so I, you know, what we're trying to do is, on a slightly larger scale, or maybe as large a scale as is possible, to create a counterculture of people who can go out and say, this is not the way we should be doing politics. We should be doing it this way. You know, uh, there's a recent Notre Dame study that said uh, of, uh, they followed this group of people from age 13 to 30, okay? And what they found was half the people that identified as Catholic at age 20 identified as former Catholic at age 29, okay? Half the ones that identified as Catholic at age 20 identified as former Catholic at 29. What they don't go, uh, they, they asked further and they said, these people still at age 29 that identified as former Catholic still believed in God, still prayed, still actually believed in some of the, many of the things that the church taught. They just weren't going, okay? We see that as a lack of understanding of the power of community that we in the United States ha have a problem with. And the, and the lack of understanding of the power of community is because our, our families are, are disjointed. If you don't understand the, the, the family unit and how powerful that can be, you're not going to understand community and you're not going to understand the church. And so this is, this is what's happening with as the generations go. Um, I don't know if you, it, this, is, we're, this is a long-term battle we have, but we have to turn to the family and I think you have to turn to the Blessed Virgin Mary. I mean, you know, ultimately, we have to ask her for her intercession for this country and for the world to help us strengthen families and, and strengthen uh, society, I think. So. That's a wonderful note to end on. Uh, so it's and on a feast day on the, of, on, on of the feast Mary. of the Holy Name of Mary, that yeah. uh, uh, Colonel Dolan was given this, this homily today in which he, he was saying about Bishop Sheen, um, a famous Catholic University professor, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the, the the guy who gave the uh, the homily at his his funeral was saying he pictured Bishop Sheen arriving in heaven and going up to shake Jesus' hand and Jesus saying to him, Ah, Fulton Sheen, I've often heard my mother talk about you. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, and that's great. The most frequently asked question I get these days is what to do about the election. And the only answer, the only good answer I have to give people is it's not election day yet. Pray about it. If we, if we spend as much pr time praying about it that we do complaining about it, that might actually make a difference. So thanks again. Thank you both. Thank you, everyone, Thank you. for coming. Thank you.